Someone has to coordinate all the action, and I think that's really the, the main goal for government here. And someone has to hold just transition as kind of the key principle or kind of the organizing principle for all of the other policies that are put in place. Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program from CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This episode is part of our Just Transition Initiative, a partnership of CSIS and the Climate Investment Funds. Together, we just released a new study on how coal phase-outs in South Africa and India can be a just transition for those coal-dependent communities. We encourage you to check it out. There's a link in our bio. And this week, my colleague and lead author on that study, Sandeep Pai, talks with two experts very familiar with the changes in these two countries. Chandra Bhushan, president and CEO of iForest, and Jesse Burton with the University of Cape Town and a senior associate with E3G. Together, they look at just transitions in the context of the upcoming COP26 agenda and then turn to the status of coal transitions in South Africa and India. I'll turn it over to Sandeep now to kick off this important discussion. So, Chandra Bhushan and Jesse, very welcome to Energy 360 podcast. I'm really excited to talk to two of my very favorite people in the field. So I'm really keen to ask you a lot of questions about COP, coal, and just transitions. So let's get started. My first question is to Chandra Pushan. You have extensively participated in many COPs. What are some of the key issues that policymakers around the world are going to discuss in this COP in Glasgow? And what are some of the key areas for India to focus on in the current COP? Thank you, Sandeep, and my pleasure to be on this podcast with you and Jesse. My first COP was in 2009. Before that, I never used to go to these big climate conferences, but I went in 2009 for the first time and then attended many more COPs. Now, what is quite clear to me that the host governments always try to get some big thing out of COP. They try to get big headlines. I'm not sure whether they get big things done, but they certainly try to get big headlines. And I do see Glasgow also as a big headline COP on net zero. And UK and US, as well as Europeans, are very keen that COP26 is a net zero COP. They also want some statement on coal power, that there should be an end to coal power. So from from that perspective, I think COP26 headline is going to be net zero, coal, and some announcement on finance. That's the bargain that developed countries and developing countries are doing right now. As far as India is concerned, I think there is a genuine concern within the country that developed countries are pushing this entire process too fast. That's what India's concern is. And I do respect that concern. I also think there are different things that we can do at at COP26, but I do respect it simply because U.S. is coming to this COP with very low credibility. With Trump administration's behavior on climate change, for example, they, they walked out of the Paris Agreement. The withdrawal of U.S. from Afghanistan and what has happened in Afghanistan. So the U.S. is coming to this COP with very, very low credibility and also less trust factor. Now, how do you expect countries to suddenly start trusting US just because one president has gone and another has come back? Trump is gone and suddenly US has become good guys with Biden. Uh, I don't think geopolitics is that simple. 
And somehow, Europeans are trying to wash away this entire issue of low trust, low credibility, you know, disagreement between developed and developing countries. And they want to show that everyone is together. It's hunky-dory again. We are friends. So for me, I am not expecting, frankly speaking, and I would like to be wrong, but let me just say that. I am not expecting this COP to be more than a big headline COP. Things will go back to normal after this COP, and maybe we will start waiting for the next COP. Because the groundwork is not ready for an ambitious action in all the countries across the world on climate change, including net zero, coal, uh, and finance. So that's what my take is. Okay, that's great. Moving on to Jesse. What are some of the South Africa's priorities at COP26? Uh, hi, Sandeep. Thanks so much for having me today. Um, so I guess there's two key areas that South Africa will be looking at. So the first one is actually outside of the formal negotiations where people might be familiar with the fact that um, there have been discussions between South Africa and some climate envoys from developed countries around a country deal or some sort of package for ESCOM. ESCOM is our state-owned enterprise, the monopoly utility. Um, so that's the one element. Um, and then inside the formal negotiations, I think one of the most critical points for progress, um, and I agree here, is going to be around finance. We know that developed countries have not met their Copenhagen commitments of 100 billion US per year. But even so, I think South Africa is expecting that there'll be deliberations around a new long-term goal on finance. Um, our, our Minister of, the, of Environment has proposed a figure of $750 billion per year. Others have suggested $1.3 split between adaptation and mitigation. But I think a lack of progress on finance is going to be a real sticking point. On markets in Article 6, um, South Africa is going to be looking to conclude a robust system that will guarantee environmental integrity, um, including review of international cooperative approaches, levying of a share of proceeds on cooperative approaches, and a sustainable development mechanism to fund adaptation. On both adaptation and loss and damage, I think South Africa would be expecting meaningful discussions on a global goal, um, looking to establish an agenda item on adaptation, and, and, and kind of full recognition of the necessity to meaningfully include loss and damage in all the elements of the Paris framework. And then finally, on transparency, um, South Africa would be looking for a robust international system, um, including adequate levels of support for developing countries to implement it, as well as agreement on a five-year common time frame. That's fantastic. Thank you to both of you for laying out the big picture agenda of the COP and very important positions of India and South Africa, two very important countries uh, going into the COP. But let's move on to the topic, you know, that we all really discuss and talk about, which is coal phase out and just transition. So, I mean, one of the things that Chandrabhushan just pointed out is that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson and COP President Alok Sharma, they're really keen to see some kind of agreement on COP. And their big ask is, for OECD countries to phase out coal coal power by 2030, and for non-OECD countries to phase out coal by 2040. What do you think India's stand on this coal phase-out issue is? Uh, and what are some of the key barriers that a country like India faces in committing to a coal phase-out? Let me answer it in two ways, Sandeep. The first is that we need to look at this issue separately. What I mean to say is, when you bring international climate politics and domestic coal issue together, the issue gets muddled. 
So it is important to look at international negotiations separately and what India can do on coal domestically separately. Then we are likely to get better answer on this issue. So let me first say about international negotiations. It is easy for OECD to phase out coal. And I'll tell you the reason. First of all, coal is not a significant part of OECD's energy basket. Coal power, other than Poland, very few countries have even 10% or 15% of their electricity coming from coal. UK has virtually phased out coal. And therefore, for OECD, it is not a big problem as far as energy contribution from coal is concerned. OECD coal power plants are also very old. They are 40, 50 years old. They should have been phased out long back. In fact, there are only few plants which are you know, less than 10 years old. But as far as I remember, uh, the vintage is quite old as far as OECD is concerned. So they all are depreciated plant. It is not going to cost OECD much to close down those plants, other than the issue of workers, of course. Uh, for which Europeans have come out with powering past coal alliance and uh, coal areas in transition in EU for just transition. But frankly speaking, it is a straightforward, painless process, quote unquote, compared to other countries where coal is big. In our case, 70% of electricity is coal. Uh, in China, that number is more than 50%. If you look at the big countries, in case of Indonesia, it is similar to what India is. So, for countries where coal is uh, the center of electricity supply, it is difficult. Therefore, joining the phase-out schedule of OECD with developing countries doesn't seem very nice to me. I would like, for example, that when you are talking about phase-out of coal, you should start talking about phase-out of other fossil fuels as well. Then it is apple-to-apple -apple comparison. Gas is no good. And now it is very clearly established that you know, the world is talking about methane problem. And, at a 20, and for a 20 years time frame, gas is as bad as coal if your methane emission is about 3%. Just 3%, you know, a leakage of methane from well to burner makes methane as bad on, uh, on climate issues as coal. So, and therefore, for OECD, gas is going to be challenging as coal is going to be challenging to us. So at international level, both these things will have to be understood. I would like to discuss phase out of all fossil fuel plants, electricity plants uh, internationally, and then ask OECD countries, what is your time frame for that phase out? And then look at other developing coal dependent economy, what is your time frame is? Otherwise, you are picking and choosing right now. You are saying coal is bad, but you are saying gas is good. Unfortunately, that is not true. So that's what at the international level my argument would be. Let's talk about phase out of all fossil fuels. Domestically, I am much more bullish on India. I think domestically, it makes sense for India to start phasing out coal much more faster than what people are asking us to do. And therefore, I, I started by saying we must disconnect between international negotiations and what we are going to do uh, domestically. Because when you put both of them together, you get into this trouble of comparison and other issues. So domestically, I am bullish. I think with the falling cost of renewable energy, with the kind of uh, pollution that is happening from coal, the climate issues. I would like India to actually coal power in India to peak before 2030 and maybe phase out between 2040 and 2050. That is the time frame. It is a realistic time frame. We will be able to transition the economies that I will propose. Uh, that's great. Moving on to South Africa, another very coal-dependent economy, Jesse. So, do you think these timelines 
of 2030 for OECD and 2040 for a country like South Africa would be realistic? And would South Africa accept that? And what is their stand on this issue? And what are some of the barriers? Thanks, Sandeep. So I think it's a it's an interesting idea that we should disconnect the international from the domestic. I, I mean, I think it's helpful for for getting diplomatic and geopolitical kind of trends to go in a direction to have these kinds of symbolic dates. But I think we should also be cautious about applying global models to particular contexts. And so I think it's a really interesting idea that, you know, in India, you might be thinking about going faster because also there are a whole lot of local environmental impacts that should be considered. Um, it's very similar in South Africa. So two things, I think in South Africa, our domestic politics are such that we're, we're not at a place where we could commit to a 2040 phase out internationally yet. Part of this is that OECD countries are not showing the necessary action. So I agree, even though their coal plants are old and it's relatively cheap, and in fact, in many places, you could already save money by closing coal earlier, for example, in the US and, and the EU, you know, OECD countries are not going fast enough. Um, and I want to say especially Germany and the USA. And so that drives some of the kind of, I don't want to say intransigence, but kind of some of the caution in South Africa. Um, interestingly, a lot of local analysis done by in-country teams here has also shown that coal phase out around 2040 is consistent with our own domestic pathways towards Paris consistent um, futures. So in fact, anyway, I think South Africa should be looking at a 2040 coal power phase out, but that's based on energy systems and just transition thinking in the country. Currently, 2040 is not in any official plan. So I think it would be very hard for South Africa to agree to that internationally. And I think it's also very important when we start to talk about these dates to look at the costs. There are clear benefits. I mean, there are benefits to regions like Mpumalanga that have sort of incredibly bad air pollution, some of the worst air pollution in the world, um, environmental degradation, you know, all these things are impacting livelihoods. But there are also very serious costs. South Africa gets more than 70% of their primary energy from coal and 86% of coal power. So India, Indonesia, China, also very coal dependent, but I think nowhere comes close to South Africa in terms of dependency in the, in the power system on coal. And um, if we move from a, a sort of current policy scenario to a, to a 2040 phase out, that has implications for workers in the coal mining sector, for example. So, and that happens in two ways. So at the moment, what, what happens is that a lot of workers tend to drop out of coal mining quite young. Um, it's a very understudied uh, area, but we think it's because people are very ill or they too sick to work. And so there's a lot of new entrants entering the, the coal mining sector all the time. So as you start to phase out coal, all of these new jobs that would have been created in the region disappear unless you have an economic diversification strategy. Um, and then on top of that, if you if you move from the current policy pathway to something more rapid, you also go from about 3,000 to about 25,000 forced job losses between now and 2040. That doesn't sound like a lot, but in a place like Mpumalanga, you have 45% unemployment. So every single job is really, really important. Um, on top of that, there are costs associated with the foster a lot of renewable energy. So you need support of finance. You need a, a plan around... Um, developing the necessary transmission infrastructure. South Africa faces huge transmission infrastructure constraints at the moment. We can't, the best renewable resource regions, we can't evacuate any power from. And ESCOM, our state-owned utility, is also in a financial crisis, which really puts a lot of this at risk. At the same time, um, there are a lot of promising signals around coal phase-out in general. We've got a soft commitment to net zero in our long-term strategy. ESCOM have themselves committed to net zero by 2050. 
Um, we've seen a lot of banks start to look at fossil fuel exclusions, especially around coal power, which is, of course, the easiest one. And it's very clear new coal power in South Africa is not financeable, and I can't see any new plants being built here. It would be very costly. As a country, you've just submitted an updated NDC, and the lower range of that NDC, which is getting close to 1.5 degree compatible, it kind of just pips in, means that if you did build more coal, it would actually become even more costly to meet that. So it would cost you about $7 billion in that system if you built more coal. And so, you know, making, making an ambitious target more costly and difficult to meet doesn't really make any sense. At the same time, there's a really, there's a live just transition debate in the country, both at, at national, provincial and local government levels, as well as in civil society and in organized labor. So I see a lot of kind of progression around the thinking about what needs to be done to manage this kind of commitment. That's great. I'm glad, Jesse, you brought the topic of just transition because that's something I'm going to ask next. So this year we did a report on, you know, looking at just transition in Jharkhand and Pumalanga. But starting with Chandrapurshan, you know, in the context of all that is happening nationally and internationally at COP and elsewhere, and to all the talk about coal phase-out, what should be key priorities on the ground in regions, coal-dependent regions such as Jharkhand, with regards to just transition? So, Sandeep, let me start by saying that Jharkhand is a very complicated case. See, Jharkhand currently, it has the largest reserve, but it is not the largest producer of coal. It has the oldest coal mines and coal fields. But coal production has actually shifted out of Jharkhand to bigger mines in Odisha, Chhattisgarh, Madhya Pradesh, uh, and Maharashtra. So one, Jharkhand has old coal mines. The, the mines are exhausted. The quality of coal is going down, as well as the governance in Jharkhand is one of the weakest in India. So what, you know, last few months I have been thinking about it that should we be looking at just transition in Jharkhand first or should, it be, should we be looking at just transition issue in other states where the issues are not complicated? Okay. So one of the things that I am thinking about is how do we move on this entire issue of just transition? Should we look at the path of least resistance and start developing confidence that it can be done? Or should we head on take the toughest issue, Jharkhand, for example, and start uh, experimenting with that? So this dilemma is in my head right now. So the, the first point is, where do we start this entire process of coal transition and just transition in India? Should it be from Jharkhand? Should it be from other state? That's point number one. So this is one of the big issues on ground. Where do you start? Okay. The second issue is that it is now quite clear, and uh, I have said it in, in, in the last meeting that we both were together, that other than people who are formally employed in coal companies, either contract worker or informal worker or coal pickers, who will be about 80 to 90% of all people making a living out of coal, they are not interested in coal. They do coal mining or depend on coal mining simply because there are no options. If you provide them skills, they will gladly leave coal. Therefore, on the ground, the issue has to be from now onwards, start looking at what we have called as 5R, the five R's of just transition. Start looking at how do we, you know, redo the economy? Okay, how do we diversify the economy? That's one. Because unless and until 
you are providing them alternatives, they're not going to leave, leave coal. They will resist even the closure of, of mines. So how do you start diversifying the economy, restructuring the industries? Those will have to start right now before you say, I'm going to close down coal. Second R is start talking about reskilling of workforce and skilling of new workforce. Third, start talking about revenue substitution because some of these states depend on coal revenue and start talking about investment in just transition from where the money will come, both public and private source. And then there is a genuine concern in these areas that you might close coal, coal mines, but you will bring industries who will be as environmentally and socially harmful as coal mines. So start putting in place a new compact on social and environmental responsibility. So these are, you know, the kind of things we will have to start doing right now, start planning right now, start engaging with communities right now. Right now, the discussion on just transition in India is within think tanks and, and union ministries. It's no good. Frankly speaking, we have not even scratched the surface of what what, what will be the actual requirement? What I am telling you is theoretical. When I go on the ground and start discussing diversification of economy, then I will understand what I have to do when I start engaging with political actors there. So a lot of things that is happening right now on just transition space, and, I'm, and, and you know Sandeep very well, this is a very new area, exciting area, but a lot of work needs to be done. So these are some of the issues that are in our head. We are still grappling with the challenge it is. As I said, in my head, just transition is a developmental issue. It is not a climate issue. Just transition is about development. How do we redevelop coal communities, coal-bearing areas, so that they can gladly leave coal? This is what just transition is. That's great. I, I really like that just transition is a development issue. Moving on to Jesse, you have done so much work on Pumalanga. Uh, but when we think about the big picture, you know, in the scope, we're talking about coal phase out. But, you know, what are some of the key priorities for a just transition in a region like Pumalanga, which is so coal dependent for jobs and everything else? So for those who aren't familiar with Pumalanga, more than 80 percent of South Africa's coal is mined there. In about a 100-kilometer radius region, almost all of our power plants, our coal-to-liquids plant, and more than 80% of the mines are in one place. So there are these incredible levels of concentration and lack of economic diversification. And I just I just want to say, Chandra, yes, just transition is about broader development. Um, and I think there's a lot of emphasis on workers, for example. But what we see in Mpumalanga, in fact, in the whole of South Africa, is that you have youth unemployment that is almost 70%. So really, you need an entirely new development pathway. For me, looking at coal is kind of, that's the first and biggest and most immediate and pressing challenge. But it's going to be much bigger than coal. It's going to be about manufacturing and the automotive sector and the liquid fuels value chain and buildings and, and something much bigger than just coal, but coal is my thing. So we'll talk about that now. So this, these incredible levels of, of concentration mean that you've got towns like Malathleni, which means place of coal, where 44% of the, that town's GDP comes from coal mining and 25% of employment is in coal mining. And there's a very real concern that as you phase out coal, if this happens without a plan or whatever, that people's livelihoods are just going to be destroyed that you're going to send people back into dire poverty if they lose their jobs. And beyond that, that there's all these secondary impacts, you know, women who sell food at mine, at the entrances to mines, women and children who are picking coal for subsistence, 
uh, men who are picking coal for small scale commerce and tracking. And, you know, there's all of these network built around coal and, and not all of it is that well understood. But I want, to, I want to say, I mean, some of the other challenges are, of course, I mentioned it earlier, but extensive environmental damage. So the Olifant's catchment, which, which is the main kind of catchment area that, that is in the coal mining region, is the most polluted river catchment in the, in the country. There's already very large service delivery and governance challenges. People feel excluded, as they often do in, in resource extracting spaces. Um, I've mentioned high levels of poverty and un unemployment. So we kind of need a transition anyway for people in the region that addresses unemployment, that especially also needs to look at youth and women. And I see kind of different elements to this. Social dialogue is very important. Um, so kind of the ILO definition says, you know, workers, employers and government, but of course also communities as integral here and civil society have been active on the ground for many years here, you know, um, working with communities and local activists around their rights, around environmental justice, developing what is called here an open agenda on just transition. So kind of really trying to surface what it is that communities themselves want out of this. We need worker planning. Um, so although we see workers dropping out of the workforce quite young, as I mentioned, you know, if you're going to have an accelerated transition, there will be forced job losses. So you need to think a lot about how do you redeploy? Can you redeploy workers? Um, can you pay early retirement? I think there needs to be some attention paid to health and, and, and those kinds of elements. And then, you, you know, what you really need is a bigger economic diversification strategy for the region. And this could take all sorts of, of ways, but we need to start looking in, in quite a lot of detail. What does a green industrial plan for the region look like? ESCOM are looking at power plant repurposing and new renewables in the region. Can you put synchronous condensers in old coal plants? Can you use the existing transmission infrastructure, which is very close to load? Can we put South Africa is looking at um, about 20 gigawatts of, of renewables over the next decade? And, and in fact, you know, if, if we want to kind of attain the more ambitious end of our NDC, we, we basically need to double that. So there's a lot of opportunity for localizing renewable in energy manufacturing. And so people are thinking, you know, can we locate this in a, in a coal region as part of a, as one pillar of a just transition? Um, but also for me, it's much more than just energy. Mpumalanga has some of the best agricultural land. So thinking about how to develop the agro-processing sector, other kinds of manufacturing, because you've got quite a skilled workforce. Obviously, the closure of mines, which up until now has been not managed very well. So there's lots of issues around acid mine drainage and degraded land. Um, but there's a lot of opportunity. So can you develop a working for mine rehabilitation program? Can we look at the value chain opportunities through biofiber economies? So growing, kind of putting putting crops on degraded mining land that help to also kind of regenerate the soil. Um, and then there's been some work kind of looking at what you can actually turn that all into. So what can you do with hemp? And kind of can you develop it all the way down the line into other kinds of high value products? And I think like as more and more people are kind of getting involved in this, and there are, I think by my count, about 25 just transition research programs in South Africa, a lot of this kind of innovation and imaginative ideas will start to come to the fore. Where I see a huge gap is really also around energy poverty, which is completely ignored. So there are a lot of households who depend on coal domestically, um, either because they can't afford electricity or because they're not connected. And that has huge health implications that are not being addressed. And that isn't really featuring in a lot of the discussions yet. And I think it's a real area of oversight. That's great. Thank you both for laying out the understanding of the big picture and also many interesting details about just transition in, in these two places. 
Let's focus on the role of governments. Let's start with Jesse this time, and let's focus on the role of governments and state-owned companies like ESCOM, who you said are trying to diversify their business. So what kind of role can governments and state-owned enterprises like ESCOM play in facilitating a just transition for coal-dependent communities? So ESCOM has been a fascinating, it's been fascinating to watch ESCOM's transition from a coal-heavy utility into one of the drivers of just energy transition, which is what they term it. They set up a Just Energy Transition Project office who's looking at repowering and repurposing. They've commissioned studies on the closure of all of the coal plants, um, and they've committed tentatively at least to net zero. So they're kind of driving this. Um, and their commitment is to net zero with sustainable with a sustainable increase in job creation. I think part of this is that they are in financial problems, so they're also looking at, at how to survive. But they've always had an interesting role where they've had a developmental mandate around, for example, energy access that they've kind of embraced at different times in their history. What I think is really amazing about this is that actually it's easier to manage these kind of complicated transition if you have an ESCOM. And I think Colt, maybe it, I'd be really interested in your guys' views on whether Colt India Limited maybe has the, can play a similar role in India. Because for me, there's a lot of, like the, one of the big challenges is around coordination. And here you have a company that can manage that internally, at least for power plants. In South Africa, most of the jobs are actually in mining, but I, I don't see a kind of immediate way of coordinating worker transition, like redeploying workers who are still young and still able to work between 100 different privately owned mines. You know, that's really complicated. Government has a key role to play here, but it also depends at the level you're at. So, so some of the municipalities, for example, aren't engaged in these kind of international debates around just transition and climate and you know, they're just, they're trying to deliver services all the time and they see a lot of risks around service delivery, a lot of this kind of taxes disappearing and kind of those kinds of issues. But, you know, someone has to coordinate all the action. And I think that's really the, the main goal for government here. And someone has to hold just transition as kind of the key principle or kind of the organizing principle for all of the other policies that are put in place. And I think sometimes when the politics are not lined up yet. And I think we've seen that here a little bit. There's a lot of contradictions and the energy ministry has been a little bit more conservative around coal phase out than other parts of government. We haven't got agreement on the pathway yet. And so that makes the planning much, much harder at a national level. In the region, government already sees all the impacts of coal. And so they're much more alive to the fact that you need systems to be put in place now to start thinking about economic diversification, which is exactly what the province has done. So they've created something called the Green Economy Cluster, a green, green economy cluster agency, which is going to look at agriculture, water and energy diversification opportunities in the region. And they're also thinking and talking about kind of how the provincial government can run ongoing stakeholder and have an ongoing stakeholder grouping um, around climate policy and just transition that will will coordinate and discuss and debate and have the kind of social dialogue part of this um, on the ground. That's great. Yeah, I mean, Coal India would be a very interesting case, and I would be very curious to hear Chandrabhushan's views on that. So the same question to you, what kind of role can national, local, and state governments, along with coal companies, play in facilitating a just transition for coal regions? So India is a little more complicated than South Africa in a way that our thermal power plants are owned by a lot more companies, including public and private. NTPC, of course, is a is, is a government-owned large coal power company, but 
two third of the coal power capacity, if I'm not wrong, is now with private sector. So there is a clear difference in private and public ownership. Coal mine, 80% is coal India. While I, I think it is an advantage that, you know, your, your large coal mining is with one company and it is under the government and government direction can work. It is also a danger because there is a lot of politicization that can happen. The political interference, the interference of other departments uh, of the government in Coal India is quite well established. Coal India uh, is not as independent and autonomous as it is made out to be. At one point of time, it had, if I'm not wrong, it had about $6 billion of cash reserve. And that cash reserve is down to $1.5 billion. And it has been asked to build toilets, to run schools, to God knows what. So. So there is both an, both an advantage and a disadvantage of having one company run your entire coal economy. Now, I think Coal India will perform better on just transition. First of all, let me say that I think there is a lot of capacity building that is required within the Coal India itself to grasp this issue of transition. I think Coal India understands that it is an energy company and not a coal company. It is therefore setting up a solar manufacturing plant, as you know. It has already started the process of doing that. It wants to diversify into other energy sectors. So from business perspective, it has started doing it. But from transition perspective, and especially just transition perspective, I think Coal India has, has huge capacity gap. So while it can become a solar company or a hydro company or some other renewable company, Coal India will struggle to close down coal mine in an economically, socially, and environmentally uh, sound manner if what uh, currently the status is. Its history of coal mine closure is not that glorious. Coal India has not done very well with uh, mine closure, physical mine closure, leave social and labor and, and, and other issues. I also think that considering the fact how entrenched the manufacturing sector is with coal economy, transition is not going to be simply limited to coal mining areas. Transition will spread out to areas and districts and states where there are end, end user of coal, whether it is a steel hub of India or it is cement districts of India, uh, those districts will also get affected. So one that, of course, the primary zone of transition will be coal mining areas, but there will be secondary and tertiary zone of transition that we also have to look at and plan for. So this is broadly uh, what it is. I would like Coal India to have much more research cell within Coal India itself to look at these issues, uh, work with other research organizations, build its capacity on these issues. And we have time. Sadeep, I, I do not think that this coal transition is going to happen in a decade. Multi-decade processes, this is going to be a multi-decade process, two decades at least. So we have time. It's not that things are are going to happen tomorrow. And, and I'm quite optimistic that if everyone comes together and works together, uh, we will be able to do this. Can I just ask you to say sentences about the role of state and national governments? Okay. Frankly speaking, national government has to provide a national framework. A national framework is required because how do you decide which coal mine closes first? I mean to say, should a coal mine in Orissa close first or Jharkhand close first? So there has to be a national framework to decide this. Also, resource, central government has money and central government has policy levers, uh, which it can use to attract private funding in these areas, including tax rebate, which union government in India has used very 
widely to bring development in economically backward areas by giving tax incentives to private sector to go and invest there. So both central government has to put the national framework on just transition. State government has to put the state plan on just transition because in the state also you have to decide which district will go first and what will be the criteria of doing this, which is going to be a difficult one where uh, you need what kind of investment. So a state plan and then a district annual, you know, short term, medium term and long term plan, which would be implementation plan. I have a one. I have one major concern that I must tell you. Uh, my major concern is at the district level that uh, at the local level we have not built capacity for transition, especially in coal mining areas. There are no good institutions who can handhold uh, district administration. District administration, as you know, in India is in any case is run by one person, the district magistrate, which is a very British system, unfortunately. But that's the truth. And uh, so one man army is not going to make this transition happen. We will have to think a little bit more in terms of how district level plan will be implemented. Jesse, you have some reaction to Chandra's point, I think. I just wanted to jump in and say, I think that we've seen that almost all companies in the world have struggled to close mountains well. So this isn't just a uniquely Indian problem. This is a problem in South Africa. Even the best rehabilitation happening here leaves you with land that is at best got two thirds of its former yields, you know, if you want to grow crops, for example. Um, and then I just wanted to also add, you know, it's very sexy at the moment, you know, now to talk about coal retirement mechanisms. And a lot of it is very heavily focused on plants. Um, but for me, mining is actually the key, the key space here. How do you, take resources and close them early, perhaps. I mean, even, at, you know, it's hard enough to close mines on, on a planned timescale that often undercapitalized for rehabilitation. Now you're asking or telling companies that you're going to lose out on some years of revenue that you actually need for good environmental and social closure processes. But mining is, is where most of the jobs are, at least in South Africa. It's where the jobs and livelihood impacts are going to happen. So thinking about like innovative, innovative ways of looking at the coal mining problem, I think is absolutely the most important part of this. And then I want to add, this is definitely a multi-decade issue. It, for us in South Africa, you know, we've got to start to build out renewables at, at such a fast rate, you know, kind of 10 times what we've been doing over the last few years. But at the same time, we are already starting to close some coal plants that are very old. They kind of, you know, they were they were closed in the 90s and brought back on their ancient. You can't get parts of them anymore, kind of thing. So we we're starting already to look at kind of pilot projects and and the, you know there are four very old ones that are kind of immediately being closed, like right now in the next few years, where Eskom really needs to think about how to repower and repurpose them. But doing that lets you build out the institutions and capacities to do this in a much bigger and faster way later on. So here in South Africa, we've kind of got a closure of plants probably six this decade and some associated mines. But then you get to the 2030s and you're looking at closing 20 or 25 gigawatts of, of coal over 10 years. I know the numbers are small if you're from India and you've got 225 gigawatts, but we only have 45 gigawatts. So, you know, you, you're closing half your fleet in, in a decade, and that's a very complicated question. And on top of that, you have all the mining. But building out now and learning how we go through the, I love the five R's as well, learning how to do these, these things is what we have to focus on now, I think, in the short term and build that capacity in institutions, be it Coal India Limited or local government or, or new, new institutions that are being set up specifically to manage this. 
That's great. Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground about just transition and coal. But let's, you know, kind of close the loop kind of going back to COP. So one of the things is given it's very, very clear that there's urgency and pressure on India and to move away from coal. How can the international community support a just transition away from coal in a place like India? Let's start with Chandra Bhushan first. There has to be, an, and I have written about it, Sandeep, that we have to start building an international cooperation on just transition because just transition is about development. And we have had international cooperation on development. So it's not that we are talking something new. We have decades of experience on international cooperation on development, which is called as ODA, Overseas Development Assistance. So I, I view just transition framework at the international level as some variant of ODA, Overseas Development Assistance, to rebuild, redevelop these areas who are going to uh, economically and socially uh, suffer because of closure of these mines. So in my head, it is clear that it has to be a development assistance program. Development assistance program also, 90% of money comes from domestic sources. It's only about 10% which comes from outside. But that 10% attracts uh, international capital and funding and other things. So one is ODA. The second is how do we bring international capital into these areas where a lot of policy reforms will be required in countries like India itself in terms of just transition funding. So these are the two pillars that I see, ODA, as well as inter attracting international capital for transition. And the third pillar is going to be capacity. How do we build capacity within India to deliver? You can have all the money you want, but if you don't have capacity, how are you going to spend that money? So get uh, capacity building. Technology is not a problem in my head. If you have money, you can buy all the technology that you want in the world. So th that's not a uh, big issue. So this is what broadly an international framework, we are doing a paper, which we'll be, we will be releasing uh, in the second week of COP on international framework on just transition. So I've just given you a peak preview of that international framework report that we are coming out with. Exciting. And I'm looking forward to that report. But let's ask Jesse, before we close, the same question. Given the urgency and pressure on South Africa to move away from coal, how can the international community support a just transition in the country? I think the key thing is really around finance. So besides the overall issues on international financial support for climate change in general, right? Overall, it's too little. It's not necessarily the right quality. It's hard to access. South Africa is classified as a middle-income country, not a poor one. So, so we really struggle to access the, the, kind of the bulk of donor funds. Um, the solution to this is we've got to make a really strong case for crowding in international finance and donors. We need a lot of nuance around how we're going to put together those finance packages, um, looking at different sectors. Um, so it's not, you know, it, there's a social justice component, there's a power sector component, but also looking at new sectors, how to rebuild this new development pathway. And one of the challenges that, you know, this can't happen purely on commercial finance. I think we really need real grant money around the social justice elements. So there's a lot of technical assistance and that's very important and that's very necessary. It builds institutions, it builds capabilities, it helps with studies and data collection and that, but it's not enough. I would like to see donor countries really stepping up. We need an order of magnitude more grant equivalent support for the just transition explicitly. And I don't see that forthcoming. I can see partly this is an issue of the pathway. If we don't know how fast you have to go, you don't know how much you need necessarily. But we've also seen that 
you know, a tiny percentage of, of the climate finance that we've received so far, which is about US dollars, 2 billion, only a tiny percentage of that has been grants. Um, a second issue is around the financial ecosystem, but that's a more general problem. It's about how to match the way finance works in South Africa to, to the kinds of projects that would be most successful at, at social and environmental justice. So I hope that we're really going to stand up and demand a very large package of support um, if we're going to be asked to go faster, given the kind of levels of inequality and poverty in the country. That's really great. And thank you so much. This has been such a great conversation. As always, I learn a lot talking to both of you. So thank you again for your time. Thanks again to Chandra Bhushan and Jesse Burton for joining us this week. You can find a link to the report, Understanding Just Transitions in Coal-Dependent Communities, in our bio and on our website, justtransitioninitiative.org. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts and at csis.org. As always, for updates, follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And thanks for listening.